Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 5. I want to go back for one more um, passage in, in Canto 20. Hugh Capet, as I said, is the French, the origin of this, this corrupt French dynasty, corrupt by Dante's estimation thing. He explains how his own life, how he, how he got hold of the crown and how he passed it on and so on. He says, I found the reins that ruled the kingdom tight within my hands. I held so much new gained power and possessed so many friends that to the widowed crown, my own son's head was elevated. The uh, Mandelbaum's translation doesn't pick up quite the nuance of this sort of nouveau riche experience. Mark Musa uh, translates it this way. All my new wealth gave me such power, made me so rich in friends. So that's the nature of the original experience. So the moral degeneration is simply a symptom of this kind of a spiritual anemia. Something has gone out of this. Of When he says friends here, it is quite clear that Dante's being ironical. So is Capet being ironical when he uses friends here. These are the kind of friends that you get more of when you get richer and more powerful. An interesting aspect of this is he says a few lines later on. If you'll notice, uh, and I don't have the numbers here in front of me what these lines are, but you've noticed ten lines below that. Uh, every other line ends with the word amends. And this is great irony on Dante's part. He's talking about... Uh, he says everything... I mean, Dante's being ironical. These were so. This is how they behave to make amends, and it's always worse than the time before, you know. But I think what an insight that might be gotten from this is that every attempt to address the problem in the context in which it arose exacerbates it. In other words, it goes back to that thing: if I try to address the problem in terms of the whole question of having, I've missed. Even if I'm, I'm. I'm being generous in the realm of having. If that's not where the problem is, I'm going to exacerbate it in some way. And one of the pro- one of the uh, issues that, that, and this comes from Marcel's analysis of having and being, is that I begin to see the mystery of life as a problem to be solved, and I begin to feel that the only way to solve it is with technique. So that I, so that what happens, and I think what has happened in the modern world is that when St. Paul in, in 1 Timothy says the, the love of money is the root of all evil, uh, in our time it, it, that is compounded with the love of or at, least the, or at least the reliance upon technology as the solution to our problems. We can, if we build Star Wars, you see, or if we, uh, if we develop some technical capacity to relieve us of some human problem, that will be all the better, you see, if we can technically solve the problem. I would just like to make one point, two points. As Capet says, the attempts to make amends were abysmal failures. They made things worse because the attempts to make amends were attempts uh, to manipulate the world of having instead of to ground it in the world of being. I, I'm imposing that on the text. That's clearly not in the text, but I, but I think that's the way of seeing it. They make matters worse. And secondly, all of the stuff, to go back to the Rethke poem with all of the things that are being sold in that estate sale, all of those things could be replaced by one item without lessening the spiritual disaster a bit. And that item is the television set. Now, I know you think I have this animus against television set, and I do. The technique or the technology or the piece of furniture that has the power to sap relational vitalities from where they belong, to absorb them, I heard this week that there is advertised, and I asked the person who told me this to bring me it because it was a 
magazine advertisement. There is an ad, there there is an advertisement for a videotape of a roaring fireplace. Now, I have always said, for years I've said that the reason the television appeals to us is because it appeals to our back brains. For hundreds of thousands of years, we as a species sat looking at the fire at night. And it's it was just ready to be seized upon by some techni- technological uh, uh, pseudo-fireplace. And that's what the television is. And now it has finally revealed itself. There is a videotape you can now get of a, of a roaring fireplace. And the reason I put this up here, this is a little drawing that I got. I'm not a drawing, but a little painting I got a year or two ago. And it shows a little, a little man sitting here alone eating his uh, spaghetti on his lap watching the, the Last Supper on color television. So. Well, it... It says everything. It says what has to be said about the problem of the world of being and the world of having, and the world of I thou and the world of I it. And that, it seems to me, is a more potent understanding of where the kind of avarice that lives in our society is grounded, more than in just greed. It seems to me it's coming from some other deeper need. Well, as I said, there's this sub-theme involved here, and either we're going to have to just treat it as a separate item or we have to harmonize it somehow with the main theme. And uh, I'd like to try to harmonize it at least uh, by returning to this idea uh, of the distinction between being and having and and touch on some of uh, Gabriel Marcel's understanding of that as we go along. There is a gulf between being and having. It is not a gulf between... uh, between uh, being and the material world at all, but it is a gulf between the two ways of existence, between being and having. But the gulf is often obscured by social and psychological tangles uh, that confuse it. And the chief among them for our purposes today is what we might call uh, our social roles, or what for Dante would be called our offices in the social order. And from these we derive our sense of identity. And uh, so often, so many of the funny f- human funny business uh, problems come back to the question of identity. Because this identity can be an acquisition. Can't We can treat it like an acquisition. And Gabriel Marcel in his analysis of being and having, uh, refers to these as characteristics. There are characteristics that we can have, that we acquire, that become part of our social identity. But we, we treat them very much the way we treat material acquisitions. So we get them, and we keep them in order, and we polish them up, and we enhance them or elaborate them or so on. And Marcel says this. He refers to these characteristics as, quote, a certain kind of possession or claim to possession of that which cannot be possessed. That is to say, I have talent or I have uh, this, that, or the other or I am a father, spouse, teacher, martyr, saint, anything. The bush that Moses went to that was burning without being consumed said the words, I am. I am. That was is the primary message that shatters all of that social identity. And, and uh, or at least grounds it in something larger. I am. But only God or one seized by God can leave the sentence as it stands. Those who haven't been to the burning bush or those who have gone so long ago they've forgotten it tend to regard that as an unfinished sentence and finish it as best they can. And what they finish it with is what Marcel calls characteristics. I am 
fill in the blanks. I am this, that, or the other. And to live in a world without that identity is very troubling. And that's what separates uh, the saints from the rest of us because they can live in that world of I am and not be troubled by it. But the rest of us are too much in the, involved with the world, uh, with the having experience, including having an identity. And so we finish the sentence as though it needed to be finished. I am this, that, or the other. What happens is that in doing that little sleight of hand, we move from the world, from the I am world, to the I have world. I am this, that, or the other. Namely, I have an identity. I have these qualities, characteristics, or so on and so forth. Moving from the I am world to the I have world is moving from the I thou world to the I it world. It's moving from the primary religious datum, which is I am, to the primary commercial datum, which is I have. I have this identity. And Buber says one of the wrenching things that takes place in, the, in a life that, in a religious life going between these polar dimensions is that one must, have to, one must always relinquish defined existence in order to have access to destined existence. That, those are his terms for it. I have to let go of my definition. I have to let go of how I finished that presumably unfinished sentence because that's not it. That doesn't mean that the way I finished the sentence is totally irrelevant. I said one, either God or one seized by God, regards that as a, as a uh, complete sentence. Three lines from uh, Bly's translation of a Rilke poem go like this. If only we could let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. In Second Isaiah chapter 43, he says, Do not, the Lord God says, Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. These are two ways of seeing that fundamental religious problem, which is that that's a complete sentence. We don't need to finish it. Well, all of that as a way of introducing this side issue that comes up here. Dante, as I said, was speaking with the Pope, Pope Adrian, and it says in line 127 of Canto 19, I kneeled, wishing him to speak, excuse me, wishing to speak. But just as I began, and through my voice alone, he sensed that I had meant to do him reverence. What makes you bend your body so, he said, and I to him, your dignity made conscience sting me as I stood erect. Brother, straighten your legs, rise up, he answered. Don't be mistaken, I, with you and others, am but a fellow servant of one power. If you have under, ever understood the holy sound of the gospel that says neque nubent, then you will see why, why I have spoken so. Go your way. I'd not have you stop longer. Your staying here disrupts my lamentation. Neque nubent is from the story uh, in Matthew of Matthew being accosted by the Sadducees about the resurrection. and What if the wife, uh, if her husband dies, she marries according to the Leverite marriage the next brother, the next brother dies, she marries the next brother, all of this is part of the, uh, a, a tradition and in, in, um, social tradition. And then they say, well, ha ha, who will she be married to in the next life, in the resurrected life? And Jesus says they will, be, in the resurrected life, we, they, will be, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And this is a reference to that. That is to say that all of those social functions are abrogated when we get to the essential issue of existence. Those don't hold when it comes to the essential question. The essential question is I am. And those are part of those all have to do with the way we finish what we think is an incomplete sentence. Well so that's so Dante is so Adrian is saying, you're kneeling because I'm Pope. Well, let me tell you about these social roles, they don't mean a thing. They don't mean a thing. He uses the word brother. You and I are brothers, he says. 
Okay? That's fine. Now, next canto, canto 20. Hugh Kepe is talking about the history of his dynasty. And he says, to make things, I don't want to make it seem too bad. He says, so I'll tell you the future before it gets there. So when it gets there, you won't think it's somehow outside of God's plan. He says, line 85 and following, that past and future evil may seem less. Now he's going to tell a story to Dante. This is something that happened after 1300, which is the fictional date of the poem, and before Dante actually wrote the poem so he could record this event with 2020 hindsight. I see the fleur-de-lis enter Anagni, and in his vicar Christ made prisoner. I see him mocked a second time, I see the vinegar and gall renewed, and he is slain between two thieves who, who are still alive. I see a new pilot, one so cruel, that still not sated, he without decree carries his greedy sails into the temple. This is Cape's way of speaking of an event that happened. The event was this. The Pope excommunicated Francis Philip the Fair because Philip was so bold as to tax the clergy. This is one of those, um, this is one of those um, uh, medieval squabbles uh, that took place. The, so the Pope excommunicated Philip the Fair. When the Pope returned to his, to his, uh, to his palace in his hometown, Anagni, the Philip the Fair's henchmen seized him and held him for three days and maltreated him. The Pope uh, behaved admirably, uh, uh, by, according to the legend, uh, and afterwards wrote a poem about the experience in which he likened it to uh, the Passion of Christ. Well, all that's fine. Dante, through Cape, is obviously outraged that the Pope would be so treated. Now, just the canto before, he had another pope tell him that being pope doesn't mean a thing. And now he's being outraged that the pope is being maltreated. Maybe it's because he likes this pope. Guess who the pope was? Boniface VIII. It's the pope that Dante hated. Not only the pope that Dante hated, the person that Dante hated, probably above every other living creature. Dante thought that he was the, the, the curse on, on the face of the earth. He couldn't have held him in greater contempt, but he was Pope. And so when Philip the Fair treated the office of the papacy with that kind of contempt, Dante is outraged by it. So what's happening here? Canto 19 says being Pope doesn't matter. Canto 20 says it means everything. Which is it? Dorothy Sayers says this about this. This balance of two equal and opposed indignations both blazing and mutually unmitigated, is a triumph of the passionate intellect unsurpassed in literature. Practically cheek by jowl, you know, these two sense of things. That social function, now let's forget popes and just think about our social functions, how we finish the sentence I am, right? Insignificant, significant. That's another way Dante is, is he, he puts us right there in the middle. Ultimately, insignificant. Right now, in terms of how we're living and what we're doing, very significant. All of those roles, if I use those roles to, to insulate myself from the burning bush and the shattering realization that I am is a complete sentence, then I use them inappropriately. And I must be reminded they're totally insignificant, including the big ones like, like parent and child and spouse and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, in the context of the real responsibilities of life, they have tremendous significance, and I must live up to them. There's a story of, of, of a pope or two in the course of history who would wear those great papal robes with all that splendor and so on, and underneath them wear a hair shirt as a reminder. I mean, I think it's a nice image of both the significance and the insignificance, the responsibilities we do have to one another in the social order, 
to behave in a certain way. I once worked with a Quaker man named Ben Seaver. Wonderful man. Taught me so much more than he realized he taught me. And he once said, this was in the heady days of the 60s, and there were lots of, lots of you know, young people around the Quaker Center where we worked. And Ben once said, one, he was completely beyond this sort of posturing, you know, tremendously so. One day he said a very strange thing to me. He said something like, uh, well, you know, you have to comport yourself appropriately because you never know who's looking on. And if anybody, you see, that, again, that's one of those things that only he could say it and really speak it, speak the truth of it. It wasn't posturing. It was a recognition that we are related and we are playing roles for one another. And these roles have a certain value and we must fulfill them. But we must always be reminded by the burning bush that I am his complete sentence. So Gabriel Marcel says, in the last analysis, having, and this is having regardless of whether it's material or, uh, or uh, social acquisition or psychological acquisition, having seems to have a tendency to destroy and lose itself in the very thing it began by possessing, but which now absorbs the master who thought he controlled it. This kind of dialectic is only possible if it starts from an act of desertion, which makes it possible. I'd like to conclude with a uh, Richard Wilbur poem called A, M a Summer Morning. The uh, movement out, once we recognize that, that, the, that the seeds of the kind of uh, avarice in our time is not so much greed, but some deeper one, I think we can also recognize that that it is it doesn't require rejection of material things it requires that they be infused with being and brought into the whole i thou cosmos and this poem to me speaks of that very beautifully it's a kind of upstairs downstairs poem her young employers having got in late from seeing friends in town and scraped the right front fender on the gate, will not, the cook expects, be coming down. She makes a quiet breakfast for herself. The coffee pot is bright, the jelly where it should be on the shelf. She breaks an egg into the morning light. Then, with the bread knife lifted, stands and hears the sweet efficient sounds of thrush and catbird and the snip of shears, wherein the terraced backward of the grounds a gardener works before the heat of day. He straightens for a view of the big house ascending stony gray out of his bed's mosaic with the dew. His young employers having got in late, he and the cook alone, Receive the morning on their old estate, possessing what the owners can but own. Isn't that a beautiful little story of the redemption of all of that that is material. It is the affirmation of all of that from the point from the place of being and not from the place of having. Near the end of Canto 20, suddenly the mountain, the purgatorial mountain, trembles, and Dante says, I could feel the mountain tremble like a falling thing, at which a chill seized me as cold grips one who goes to meet his death. So there's a sudden tremor or earthquake, a shaking of the ground, and it feels like a falling thing, and it feels like death. And ten lines later on, he hears the souls singing in exaltation, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And that is a dramatic introduction to the, the uh, accumulating paradoxes uh, from here on, uh, on into the rest of the purgatorial mountain and, of course, into paradise as well. Paradise is the place where the paradoxes uh, 
reign. Uh, but the Dantean paradoxes, of course, are based on the Christian ones. And what we get here is a trembling mountain that feels like death, and then the great, uh, the great exaltation, uh, the gloria. And this Dante bases on, um, I, on um, I think, the Gospel of Matthew, where in the Gospel of Matthew, the place where the crucifixion and resurrection meet is an earthquake. At the moment of death, Matthew says, the earth quaked and the tombs opened and holy men rose from the dead. Well, this feels like death, but it sounds like resurrection. So in Canto 21, after the beginning, after the opening uh, introduction, Dante says, Even as Luke records for us that Christ, new risen from his burial cave, appeared to two along his way, a shade appeared. So he likens this new uh, companion to the risen Christ, the, one of the what what competes well, I think, for one of the best stories in the New Testament, is the resurrection story in at the end of Luke, uh, where the two disciples on the road to Emmaus meet this stranger who who asks them about what's been happening, and when they get to Emmaus, they sit down and break bread, and they recognize him as the risen Christ in the breaking of the bread. It's a very powerful and and important resurrection story. And Dante uses that to liken the situation to that when they meet this new soul. This new soul is Statius. We won't be introduced to him for a while. It's Statius, the first century Roman poet. Virgil talks with Statius and asks him why there was a tremor. And Statius says this, beginning line of 58 of Canto 21. It only trembles here when some soul feels it's cleansed so that it rises or stirs to climb on high. And that shout follows. The shout is the Gloria. The will alone is proof of purity, and fully free surprises soul into a change of dwelling place effectively. Soul had the will to climb before, but that will was opposed by longing to do penance as once to sin, instilled by divine justice. It's a very complicated uh, translation. I long to read it in the original, but I'm not capable of that. The point is that there is a contradictory will that has tempered the will to climb to paradise. And suddenly that contradictory will is disposed of, and the other will is all there is, and the climb begins. I would like to suggest a way of looking at this. This is just a, a an interpretation that will have to be superseded by other interpretations later on. But I just suggest this as a way of trying to get hold of what Dante is talking about here. That what happens to Statius at this moment is something that might correspond, if we use the Freudian categories, to the death of the superego. The superego is, if you will, a pre-recorded voice, pre-recorded by our culture and by our authorities, parental and otherwise. It's a pre-recorded voice, the business of which is prohibition, condemnation, inhibition of impulses that don't comport very nicely with the social order. And so the superego is there to to tame those or to check those or to keep them uh, in place. The existence of the superego testifies to a kind of inner struggle that goes on. The modus vivendi of the, of the superego is not to uh, redeem the soul. It is to keep the social order intact. So it has a strictly social function, not a spiritual psychological one. The purpose, I think one can see, the purpose of the purgatory is to render the superego superfluous so that one could begin to listen, instead of listening to the pre-recorded voice, one could begin to listen to the still small voice that is so often drowned out by the pre-recorded voice or, even more dangerously, mistaken for the still small voice. 
So I see here a struggle between an inner struggle and the purpose of purgatory now, almost the opposite of what it could be seen as from a point of a strictly moral point of view. If you take the Freudian category, strictly moral point of view would want to be addressing the id question all the time. The id is that raw impulse, that th those raw urges that are so threatening to the social order. And if one addresses the purgatorial problem as a problem re related to the id, then I think in terms of the way Dante's looking at one has it backwards. The id stuff cannot be redeemed until it is made conscious. And the superego is so often responsible for keeping it unconscious. The superego is not only, not only creates moral minimums for social cohesion, but it also, ha it also has, constrains the imagination. I can't transform emotions that I don't allow myself to feel. And the superego can keep me from feeling so that the superego has imaginative and epistemological as well as moral containment associated with it. William Blake said, those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. And the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. So I just want to work for a minute or two with this idea of the superego. Let me quote you something that Lancelot Law White wrote about the modern condition. He said, The fundamental division is between deliberate activity organized by static concepts and the instinctive and spontaneous life. The European disassociation of these two results in a common distortion of both. The instinctive life lost its innocence its proper rhythm being replaced by obsessive desire. Notice this insight. Obsessive desire is the result of the loss of innocence of the instinctive life. It is not a result of the of coming into being of the instinctive life. It is, it is the result of the suppression of the instinctive life, obsessive desire. On the other hand, rationally controlled behavior was partly deflected towards ideals which also obsessed the individual with their lure of perfection. So obsession is the result in both, in both camps of the, un, of the radical split between those two. What, what, Nietzsche splits them with Apollonian and Dionysian, and it's been done in many, using many metaphors. So White then goes on to say, that, quote, morbid religiosity, hyper-intellectualism, delicate sensuality, and cold ambition are some of the variants of the dissociated personality's attempt to escape its own division. Purgatory is a place where one suffers that division as opposed to escape from it. The escape from it creates obsession. Obsessions with perfection on one hand and obsess obsessive desires on the other. Purgatory is the place where one suffers that division. A place where, as Buber says, the antinomies are allowed to meet. And the paradox that's inherent in their existence in the first place can be recognized. And when that happens, something, this superego suddenly is redundant. That is to say, the superego is more or less uh, synonymous with what we call the conscience. Conscience, again, is a collective crea creation. And that conscience pre-recorded voice, which says, you better watch out. You better behave. Overrides the still small voice, which says, come follow me. And it's the transition from the pre-recorded voice of conscience to the still small voice that is the birth of a genuine spiritual personality. And when that happens, here I want to use Buber's words to describe uh, the way in which the will functions 
as that transition begins to happen. Buber puts it this way. The person in whom this shift has occurred, he says, he intervenes no more, but at the same time he does not let things merely happen. He listens to what is emerging from himself, to the course of being in the world, not in order to be supported by it, but in order to bring it to reality as it desires. In it, it's a very touching story in Canto 21 where Statius introduces himself as the first century Roman poet and then he says that his great source of inspiration was the Aeneid and that without it his work would have come to nothing, that it was both mother and nurse to his poetic life, that he would have lived on this level of purgatory another uh, year just to have lived when Virgil lived and known him. And then there's a very touching thing where Dante tells him that this is Virgil and they have this meeting. And Virgil then in Canto 22 is very uh, deferential because after all he is he is Statius's idol but on the other hand he's going back to the vestibule in hell and Statius is going to paradise. And so Virgil wants to know, uh, given the fact that Statius uh, lived in an environment essentially like his own, Virgil says, how is it that you've got to be a Christian, which is really your ticket into paradise, according to the Dante's cosmology? Virgil says, uh, line 61 of Canto 22, what sun or what candles drew you from the darkness so that in their wake you set your sails behind the fisherman? The fisherman is St. Peter in the church. And I'd like to read his answer from the Louis Biancoli translation. Statius says, It was you who first sent me to drink in the grottos of Parnassus. That's where the muses uh, take their inspiration. And then illuminated God to me. You, Virgil he's talking about, acted as one who walks at night bearing a light behind him, useless to himself but making wiser those who follow after. That is I, I I have treasured that little tercet since I first read it a number of years ago. Virgil is the one who carries a lamp behind him. It does no it and the lamp is his own poetry. And it does him no good. But it illuminated the path of those who come after. How many creative geniuses can we say that about? You see? It it did it did Nietzsche no good. It did Van Gogh no good. In many ways, it did James Joyce no good. But it's there for us. Now, Virgil doesn't seem to have been as tormented as those, but it's a beautiful understanding of the place in the journey of life of all of us uh, that the creative artist has. And then he goes on to say, you did this when you said, and then he quotes from the fourth eclogue, which was right, this is an early poem of Virgil's, widely regarded by many since Virgil's time as a, as a groping pagan uh, prefiguration of the Christian age. It spoke of the birth of the new child and the birth of the golden age and everything was going to change. He quotes from it, the following quote, the whole world is new again. Justice is back in humanity's first time and a new progeny comes down from heaven. That's from the eclogue. And then he says, I was a poet and a Christian thanks to you. Now you have to picture Virgil's face when he says this. What would you, how would you feel if you were Virgil and you found out that this guy became a Christian because of a poem that you wrote and he simply read and you didn't become one? Charles Williams uh, reflects on this and he says that others have through us become poets and Christians does not make us Christians and poets. That we father salvation does not save us. We're in the ledge where gluttony is being purged. And gluttony seems like such a harmless sin. E even, even if we recognize as I think we must, that uh, most of the gluttony happening in America today is, has to do with diet fads as opposed to... In other words, it's, it's more... It's, uh, it's a preoccupation 
was something that ought to be dealt with more straightforwardly, as in the literal sense of the of the sin. But even with that, uh, it seems pretty harmless. Doesn't seem like what we would call quote a deadly sin. And so we have to come up to par with Dante and the medieval mind who understood it as a deadly sin. And of course, they understood it that way because they understood things at a fourfold level, and that uh, its literal expression was was uh, was trivial compared to the deeper implications. So Dante assumes the deeper implica- implications and alludes to them uh, noticeably, although they don't leap out at you as you go through this material. First of all, they come to tr- a tree. They come to two trees. They've come to this first tree, and it's an inverted conical-shaped tree where you the, the luscious fruit can be. They smell the the, the fruit up there, and they can hear and smell the water hitting the upper branches, but the water doesn't make it down to them and the fruit can't be reached. And the tree speaks and the tree says to them, among other things, this food shall be denied you. Now this is a strange instance um, of, and I think it's important here, of the, uh, in purgatory, of suddenly the, the sinners being tempted by, to the very sin they sinned. Purgatory is tempting them to that sin. And uh, the tree then speaks of uh, examples of moderation which are important. speaks of uh, the Virgin Mary, of course, of John the Baptist and so on, where, where uh, abstinence or moderation served the religious, uh, the spiritual uh, interest. The great... Uh, version of this that I, I'll, I'll never forget from when we did this years ago and used the Chardy translation is John Chardy translates this thing towards the end of Canto 22. Hunger seasoned acorns with delight. And that's, I want to cling to that and come back to it. Hunger seasoned acorns with delight. That's a tremendous Dantean understanding. It is hunger that's at issue here a hunger that tends to be lost among the myriad sublimations that are part of the civilized world. And so it is hunger that is being provoked in this temptation by the tree. Yeats has a phrase in his poem about uh, his poem on uh, uh, Meditations Time of Civil War. Oh, what if leveled lawns and graveled ways where slippered contemplation finds his ease, and childhood a delight for every sense, but take our greatness with our violence. It's a little sense of those great raging hungers, so attenuated, so sublimated, uh, so civilized, that there's not enough energy there for, the, for a genuine, vital religious life. So it's, it's hunger that Dante has his eye on here. Canto 23 begins. Dante says, While I was peering so intently through the green boughs, like a hunter who, so used, would waste his life in chasing after birds, my more than father said to me, Now come, son, for the time our journey can permit is to be used more fruitfully than this. It's very important. Dante has just learned that he cannot reach the fruit. Dante and all of us and the sinners and everything else, we, we look at that, we, we come to the tree and we see the fruit and we smell it and we smell the water and we long for it. We want it. We desire it. And then we're told, sorry, you can't have it. And so Dante does what I think he's, by implication, saying we tend to do. He continues to look up, and now he's decided, well, since I can't have it, he looks up and looks for birds like hunters do, wasting his life. In other words, he transfers his desire from the thing he's just been told he can't have to something that really is even more elusive. It's the same desire. Nothing has happened to the desire. The desire hasn't gone through any transformation. It's simply conveniently changed objects and gone on to the next one, more elusive than the one before. 
And Virgil says, don't do that. That is a recipe for a continuing life of delusion. What you must come to grips with is, number one, you want that fruit, and number two, you cannot have it. And if you go on to the next little item on the list, you just waste your life. Yeats says, we love and love what perishes. What more is there to say? Don't delude yourself. Don't avoid the heartbreak about the apple by going on to the bird. And that is so important because when Virgil calls him back from that, if you can avoid doing that, then you can, you can begin to get onto the mystery. There's a hymn, there's a sudden hymn again from the sinners. And Dante says, The hymn was wept and sung and heard in such a manner that it gave birth to both delight and sorrow. Now notice, it was wept and sung and gave birth to delight and sorrow. If I can avoid the temptation to go from the apple that I can't have, that I want and can't have, to the bird that I might have, if I can avoid that temptation, I can settle back down in to this place where the paradox will be revealed to me, which is the paradox that I desire it and I cannot have it. And it is a place where one both sings and weeps feels both delight and sorrow. And then we find out that these hungry ones, these emaciated ones who were gluttons in their life, are so emaciated, so gaunt, that Dante says in line 31, their eyes seemed like a ring that's lost its gems, and he who in the face of man could read Omo would here have recognized the M. Omo, without the H, which is not inflected in Italian, without the means man or mankind, H-O-M-O. O-M-O means man. And in the gaunt, emaciated faces of these former gluttons, one sees the O in each of the eyes, and in the cheekbone and the nose, the M. And he said, you could look. What I think the poem is saying here, I don't know what Dante is saying, what I think the poem is saying is that we are hungry. That's who we are. You want to know who man is as a species? Hungry. And we must not forget that. Because to be in touch with that hunger is the beginning of religious life. It's the beginning of religious life. There's a great passage in J James Stephen's um, Crock of Gold where the God Pan comes to... to um, the little girl, I forget her name right now. And he says, she, he gets her going with desire. And he says, uh, this is the beginning of wisdom. And she says, well, what's the end of wisdom? He says, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, we are hunger. And, we, and I think this is Dante's continuing emphasis. We must stay in touch with that. He meets Forese, one of the gluttons, an old friend of his, and Forese says, All of these souls who grieving sing because their appetite was gluttonous in thirst and hunger here re-sanctify themselves. In thirst and hunger re-sanctify themselves. He goes on to say, The fragrance of the fruit and of the water that sprayed through that green tree kindles in us craving for food and drink. Now, what is the purpose of that tree? To awaken desire. Now, that's very strange because if one approached this from a strictly moral point of view, one would have said, we got to do something about this desire, don't we? Gluttons and all of that. Let's keep it down. And Dante says, let's get it up. Let's awaken it. We don't have enough of it. That's the problem with the gluttons. And Forese goes on, not once only as we go around this space, our pains renewed. I speak of pain, but I should speak of solace. Another paradox. The Bianconi translation, I said pain, I should have said relief. 
an introduction to the to the paradoxical world in which those two things are not separate. Pain and relief of pain. Or uh, delight and sorrow and all the rest of it that Dante's been talking about in these canto. I want to uh, uh, do a little aside on that for a minute. Charles Williams uh, wrote this. The words pain and pleasure are as much an unfair dichotomy as body and soul. We must use them, yet we betray ourselves in using them. Pain and pleasure are a false dichotomy, as body and soul is a false dichotomy. On that subject, Simone Weil said, Through joy, the beauty of the world penetrates our soul. Through suffering, it penetrates our body. The beauty of the world. What I would suggest here, which is a prerequisite for entering this paradoxical realm that Dante is trying to ease us into, is that body and soul, pleasure and pain, joy and suffering, are available prisms for refracting the ontological paradox into intelligible emotional components. And that it, in fact, doesn't break down that easily. We have to break them down. We have to refract the mystery. We, we do it automatically. We refract it so that we over here feel the pain of it and over here feel the joy of it. But in this other world, which Dante is trying to move into now, they refuse to be that distinguished. And one can begin to feel them both at the same time. The next tree appears. Dante says, Beneath the tree I saw shades lifting hands, crying I know not what up toward the branches, like little eager empty-headed children, who beg, but he of whom they beg does not reply, but to provoke their longing, he holds high and does not hide the thing they want. To provoke their longing, that's what this is all about. It's almost masochistic, is it not? To provoke their longing. Ha ha, look at this, can't have it. There could be only one reason for this. They don't have enough of it already. The gluttons don't have enough longing. That's the problem. From the level of sloth onward, in the, in the purgatorial mountain, it is a question of recovering lost desire. Desire that's either been lost in apathy or lost in, a, in a, an insufficiently transcendent object of desire. So I would like to suggest that the problem of gluttony is diminished desire. Sebastian Moore quotes a priest, old priest friend of his who said to him one day, alcoholism is a thirst for God. And Moore says he didn't quite understand that for a while. Why would we choose alcohol as an expression of the thirst for God? Well, let's ask Dante. At the beginning of Canto 21, he says, the natural thirst that never can be quenched except by water that gives grace, the draft the simple woman of Samaria sought... Remember the woman of Samaria? Jesus said, I'll give you living water. The kind that'll really deal with that deeper thirst. And Dante says, the natural thirst for that tormented me, he says. Line 4 of Canto 21. The thirst for that water is tormenting. Gluttony is, a tip, is an attempt to nip the longing in the bud before it becomes tormenting. It's an attempt to sate the desire at a trivial level before it assumes religious proportion. To stuff it full at an inconsequential level so that it doesn't become consequential, spiritually consequential. So for most, when a desire stirs, there are two options. One is to ask the question, how do I sate it? How do I satisfy it? And the other, that's the, that's the uh, 
let's call it the liberal option. The other, which would be called the conservative option, is how do I control it? Those are the two responses, typical responses. When a desire awakened in Dante, he asked neither of those questions. He said, what does it tell, what does it reveal to me about the mystery of human life? In Canto 24, Dante indulges in a way a uh, poetic interest. He meets another of his friends, Bonagunta, and Bonagunta begins to recognize Dante in line 49. He says, but tell me if the man whom I see here is he who brought the new rhymes forth, beginning, ladies who have intelligence of love. Dante responds, I answered, I am one who, when love breathes in me, takes note. What he within dictates, I, in that way, without, would speak and shape. And Bonajunta says, Now I understand. Your pens followed behind him, that God, and ours did not. And that makes all the difference. That's what Bonajunta says. Now, what is Dante working with here? This line from his earlier poem, Ladies Who Have Intelligence of Love, is one he has pulled out to, to highlight. In Dante's time, the word intelligence, intellect and intelligence, thanks to Aquinas, was something quite distinct from reason. Reason was discursive, and a process. Intelligence was the immediate apprehension of the truth of something. It was more like what we call intuitive. That's good. It, intelligence was more like an intuition. It was an immediate apprehension. The, the, the faculty of the intellect made available the immediate apprehension of the truth or the mystery of something. Reason might then cooperate with that in in intellectual impact to investigate. Dante is talking about women that he knows, the feminine, that has this immediate perception of love and the power and significance of love. And so that's called into play. And then Dante's response is, I am the one that when love, and here it is, Amor, capital A, it's the God of love. When the God of love whispers in me, or breathes, or inspires in me, I attend to it. And what is he attending to? He is attending to the, to the, to the murmuring of the God of love in him. And he writes that. When, he, when Dante encountered Beatrice... He went home and wrote the following, Behold the God who is stronger than I and who in his coming will rule over me. All his friends, when they had that experience, went home and wrote about how her lips were like the red, red rose. You see the difference? Dante understood that it was a God that had hold of him and that and that the beloved was the occasion for the epiphany of the God. And so, where his friends were writing about her eyes and her lips and the way she walks, and Dante wrote that too, but Dante was really listening to the God of love. Which I think is a way of saying, the way we would express that, is that he was attentive to the archetypal possession and not simply attaching all of that significance to the personal woman involved. Paradoxically, as a result of that, both one's poetry and one's affairs can have more of a personal dimension. If one's unaware of that God of love that's in it, or of that archetype that's in it, it may seem like the most unique thing that ever happened, but in fact, the, the love affair or, what, or the poem will run its course in a totally stereotypical way. 
it will be absolutely like every other one. And the interesting thing here with Dante is because he attended to the God of love in it, it became unique and personal as well as transcendent. Buber says, The inborn thou is realized in each relation and consummated in none. And that is a recognition I think that Dante was having. This is a profoundly important experience. But when he went home, he not only wrote about Beatrice, he wrote about the God of love. And it was the God of love who was coming to take hold of it. And of course, Beatrice died. I thought of these lines from Wordsworth in book two of the prelude. He said, The props of my affections were removed, and yet the building stood, as if sustained by its own spirit. And that was Dante's experience. It's like, it's like building a shrine where the Virgin appeared, you know. That just happens to be a physical location where the apparition happened. But you still build a temple there, right? Well, Dante built a poem based on where the God had visited him, which was in Beatrice. Well, I want to conclude with something from Wordsworth uh, because... This reminded me of that passage in the Preludes, and I went to Wordsworth and started thumbing through it, and I reread part of uh, Wordsworth's uh, uh, preface to his lyric, lyrical ballads, in which he, Wordsworth had something like this dilemma. See, Dante is Dante's talking about the difference between himself and the other Romantic poets. And he tries to explain to his old friend Bontajunta in the poem that he was attending to this God in the poem. And there is not, it's not a strict parallel, but Wordsworth was also distinguishing himself from his contemporaries. And there is something of a parallel, at least I'd like to read it and then pay Dante a compliment and let it go at that. It may have also had to do with something that may relate gluttony and poetry and other things. Anyway, Wordsworth says this. For the human mind is capable of being excited without the application of gross and violent stimulants. And he must have a very faint perception of its beauty and dignity who does not know this, and who does not further know that one being is elevated above another in proportion as he possesses this capability. It's possible to be excited other than by gross and violent stimulants. It can be something quite subtle, something like the still small voice, something like the visitation that Dante felt while the earth was shaking in, in terms of this romantic encounter Dante was also attending to this epiphany uh, Wordsworth goes on this may sound familiar to you I'm telling you he wrote the following a hundred years before television a multitude or more than that a multitude of causes unknown to former times are now acting with a combined force to blunt the discriminating powers of the mind and unfitting it for all voluntary exertion to reduce it to a state of almost savage torpor. That's a great oxymoron there. Savage torpor as a result of gross and violent stimulants. Now there's a paradox for you. The most effective of these causes are the great national events which are daily taking place and the increasing accumulation of men in cities where the uniformity of their occupations produces a craving for extraordinary incident which the rapid communication of intelligence hourly gratifies. To this tendency of life and manners, the literature and theatrical exhibitions of this country have conformed themselves. Gross and violent stimulants seize upon them to, to uh, lift oneself out of that savage torpor only to be caught up in it again. And then he speaks about the, the thirst after outrageous stimulation. Now, this isn't a strict parallel to Dante's situation. Dante is juxtaposing himself to these other poets on other lines somewhat. But I think Dante is saying, I was attending to something more subtle, more powerful maybe, but more subtle in the situation. And Ver Wordsworth is saying, it is possible to get caught up in the gross and violent stimulation and lose that other capacity to be attentive to that subtle thing. For Dante, the, less ro the, the lesser of the Romantic poet, poets who were his contemporaries 
were thirsting after outrageous stimulation in order to create their poetry. And Dante's was a mind and heart that was learning to be excited by something other than gross and violent stimulations. He was trying to listen to the still small voice of the, of the God of love and to attend to where it was going to take him. So he was one who could write that hunger seasons acorns with delight. But one has to be alert to these to the simple, subtle truths to write that hunger seasons acorns with delight. And so his was an acute sensibility that was attending to this other thing. In a way, this is uh, this is not apropos, but I feel I, I want... It, it, I, I thought of it. So I wanted to conclude today by offering... Dante, this little piece of gratitude, uh, apropos of his acute sensibility to subtle things. Uh, and this is just a, just a comment made by the Irish literary critic Dennis Donahue. He was talking about Thoreau, but I'd like to use it as a, as a little uh, piece of gratitude to Dante. What Donahue said about Thoreau was this. He couldn't examine a leaf without thinking of turning over a new one. To me, that's what distinguishes Dante from his contemporaries. 